Book One, Chapter Three of On War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book One, Chapter Three. THE GENIUS FOR WAR Every special calling in life, if it is to be followed with success, requires peculiar qualifications of understanding and soul. Where these are of high order and manifest themselves by extraordinary achievements, the mind to which they belong is termed genius. We know very well that this word is used in many significations which are very different both in extent and nature, and that with many of these significations it is a very difficult task to define the essence of genius. But as we neither profess to be philosopher nor grammarian, we must be allowed to keep to the meaning usual in ordinary language, and to understand by genius a very high mental capacity for certain employments. We wish to stop for a moment over this faculty and dignity of the mind in order to vindicate its title and to explain more fully the meaning of the conception. But we shall not dwell on that, genius, which has obtained its title through a very great talent, on genius properly so called. That is a conception which has no defined limits. What we have to do is bring under consideration every common tendency of the powers of the mind and soul towards the business of war the whole of which common tendencies we may look upon as the essence of military genius. We say common for just therein consists military genius. That is not one single quality bearing upon war as, for instance, courage, while other qualities of the mind and soul are wanting or have a direction which is unserviceable for war, but that it is an harmonious association of powers in which one or other may predominate, but none must be in opposition. If every combatant required to be more or less endowed with military genius, then our armies would be very weak, for it implies a peculiar bent of intelligent powers. Therefore it can only rarely be found, where the mental powers of a people are called into requisition and trained in many different ways. The fewer the employments followed by a nation, the more that of arms predominates, so much the more prevalent will military genius also be found. But this merely applies to its prevalence, by no means to its degree for that depends on the general state of intellectual culture in the country. If we look at a wild warlike race, then we find a warlike spirit in individuals, much more common than in a civilized people, for in the former almost every warrior possesses it, whilst in the civilized whole masses are only carried away by it from necessity, never by inclination. But among uncivilized people we never find a really great general, and very seldom what we can properly call a military genius, because that requires a development of the intelligent powers which cannot be found in an uncivilized state. That a civilized people may also have a warlike tendency and development is a matter of course. And the more this is general, the more frequently also will military spirit be found in individuals in their armies. Now as this coincides in such case with the high degree of civilization, Therefore from such nations have issued forth the most brilliant military exploits, as the Romans and French have exemplified. The greatest names in these and in all other nations that have been renowned in war 
belong strictly to epochs of higher culture. From this we may infer how great a share the intelligent powers have in a superior military genius. We shall now look more closely into this point. War is the province of danger, and therefore courage above all things is the first quality of a warrior. Courage is of two kinds, the first physical courage, or courage in the presence of danger to the person, and next moral courage, or courage before responsibility, whether it be before the judgment seat of external authority, or of the inner power, the conscience. We only speak here of the first. Courage before danger to the person, again, is of two kinds. First it may be indifference to danger, whether proceeding from the organism of the individual, contempt of death or habit. In any of these cases it is to be regarded as a permanent condition. Secondly, courage may proceed from positive motives, such as personal pride, patriotism, enthusiasm of any kind. In this case, courage is not so much a normal condition as an impulse. We may conceive that the two kinds act differently. The first kind is more certain, because it has become a second nature, never forsakes the man. The second often leads him farther. In the first there is more of firmness, in the second of boldness. The first leaves the judgment cooler, the second raises its power at times, but often bewilders it. The two combined make up the most perfect kind of courage. War is the province of physical exertion and suffering. In order not to be completely overcome by them, a certain strength of body and mind is required, which, either natural or acquired, produces indifference to them. With these qualifications, under the guidance of simply a sound understanding, a man is at once a proper instrument for war, and these are the qualifications so generally to be met with amongst wild and half-civilized tribes. If we go further into the demands which war makes on it, then we find the powers of the understanding predominating. War is the province of uncertainty. Three-fourths of those things upon which action in war must be calculated are hidden more or less in the clouds of great uncertainty. Here then, above all, a fine and penetrating mind is called for to search out the truth by the tact of its judgment. An average intellect may, at one time, perhaps hit upon this truth by accident, and extraordinary courage at another may compensate for the want of this tact, but in the majority of cases the average result will always bring to light the deficient understanding. War is the province of chance. In no human sphere of activity is such a margin to be left for this intruder, because none is so much in constant contact with him on all sides. He increases the uncertainty of every circumstance and deranges the course of events. From this uncertainty of all intelligence and suppositions, this continual interposition of chance, the actor in war constantly finds things different from his expectations, and this cannot fail to have an influence on his plans, or at least on the presumptions connected with these plans. If this influence is so great as to render the predetermined plan completely nugatory, then, as a rule, a new one must be substituted in its place, but at the moment the necessary data are often wanting for this, because in the course of action circumstances press for immediate decision, and allow no time to look about for fresh data, often not enough for mature consideration. But it more often happens that the correction of one premise, and the knowledge of chance events which have arisen, are not sufficient to overthrow our plans completely, but only suffice to produce hesitation. Our knowledge of circumstances has increased, but our uncertainty, instead of having been diminished, has only increased. The reason of this, that we do not gain all our experience at once, but by degrees, 
thus our determinations continue to be assailed incessantly by fresh experience and the mind if we may use that expression must always be under arms now if it is to get safely through this perpetual conflict with the unexpected two qualities are indispensable in the first place an intellect which even in the midst of this intense obscurity is not without some traces of inner light which lead to the truth and then the courage to follow this light the first is figuratively expressed by the french phrase coup d'oeil the other is resolution as battle is the feature in war to which attention was originally chiefly directed and as time and space are important elements in it more particularly when cavalry with their rapid decisions were the chief arm the idea of rapid and correct decision related in the first instance to the estimation of these two elements and to denote the idea an expression was adopted which actually only points to a correct judgment by eye many teachers of the art of war then gave this limited signification as the definition of coup d'oeil but it is undeniable that all able decisions formed in the moment of action soon came to be understood by the expression as for instance the hitting upon the right point of attack and such it is therefore not only the physical but more frequently the mental eye which is meant by coup d'oeil naturally the expression like the thing is always more in its place in the field of tactics still it must not be wanting in strategy insomuch as in it rapid decisions are often necessary if we strip this conception of that which the expression has given it of the over-figurative and restricted then it amounts simply to the rapid discovery of a truth which to the ordinary mind is either not visible at all or only becomes so after long examination and reflection resolution is an act of courage in single instances and if it becomes a characteristic trait it is a habit of the mind but here we do not mean courage in face of bodily danger but in face of responsibility therefore to a certain extent against moral danger this has often been called courage d'esprit on the ground that it springs from the understanding nevertheless it is no act of the understanding on that account it is an act of feeling mere intelligence is still not courage for we often see the cleverest people devoid of resolution the mind must therefore first awaken the feeling of courage and then be guided and supported by it because in momentary emergencies the man is swayed more by his feelings than his thoughts we have assigned to resolution the office of removing the torments of doubt and the dangers of delay when there are no sufficient motives for guidance through the unscrupulous use of language which is prevalent this term is often applied to the mere propensity to daring to bravery boldness or temerity but when there are sufficient motives in the man let them be objective or subjective true or false we have no right to speak of his resolution for when we do so we put ourselves in his place and we throw into the scale doubts which did not exist with him here there is no question of anything but strength and weakness we are not pedantic enough to dispute with the use of language about this little misapplication our observation is only intended to remove wrong objections this resolution now which overcomes the state of doubting can only be called forth by the intellect and in fact by a peculiar tendency of the same we maintain that the mere union of a superior understanding and the necessary feelings are not sufficient to make up resolution there are persons who possess the keenest perception for the most difficult problems who are also not fearful of responsibility and yet in cases of difficulty cannot come to a resolution their courage and their sagacity operate independently of each other do not give each other a hand and on that account 
do not produce resolution as a result. The forerunner of resolution is an act of the mind making evident the necessity of venturing, and thus influencing the will. This quite peculiar direction of the mind, which conquers every other fear in man by the fear of wavering or doubting, is what makes up resolution in strong minds. Therefore, in our opinion, men who have little intelligence can never be resolute. They may act without hesitation under perplexing circumstances, but then they act without reflection. Now, of course, when a man acts without reflection, he cannot be at variance with himself by doubts, and such a mode of action may now and then lead to the right point. But we say now, as before, it is the average result which indicates the existence of military genius. Should our assertion appear extraordinary to anyone, because he knows many a resolute hussar officer who is no deep thinker, we must remind him that the question here is about a peculiar direction of the mind, and not about great thinking powers. We believe, therefore, that resolution is indebted to a special direction of the mind for its existence, a direction which belongs to a strong head rather than a brilliant one. In corroboration of this genealogy of resolution, we may add that there have been many instances of men who have shown the greatest resolution in an inferior rank, and have lost it in a higher position. While, on the one hand, they are obliged to resolve, on the other, they see the dangers of a wrong decision, and as they are surrounded with things new to them, their understanding loses its original force, and they become only the more timid, the more they become aware of the danger, of the irresolution into which they have fallen, and the more they have formerly been in the habit of acting on the spur of the moment. From the coup d'oeil and resolution we naturally speak of its kindred quality, presence of mind, which in a region of the unexpected, like war, must act a great part, for it is indeed nothing but a great conquest over the unexpected. As we admire presence of mind in a pithy answer to anything said unexpectedly, so we admire it in a ready expedient on sudden danger. Neither the answer nor the expedient deed be in themselves extraordinary, if they only hit the point. For that which as a result of mature reflection would be nothing unusual, therefore insignificant in its impression on us, may as an instantaneous act of the mind produce a pleasing impression. The expression presence of mind certainly donates very fitly the readiness and rapidity of the help rendered by the mind. Whether this noble quality of a man is to be ascribed more to the peculiarity of his mind, or the equanimity of his feelings, depends on the nature of the case, although neither of the two can be entirely wanting. A telling repartee bespeaks rather a ready wit. A ready expedient on sudden danger implies more particularly a well-balanced mind. If we take a general view of the four elements comprising the atmosphere in which war moves, of danger, physical effort, uncertainty, and chance, it is easy to conceive that a great force of mind and understanding is requisite to be able to make way with safety and success among such opposing elements, a force which, according to the different modifications arising out of circumstances, we find termed by military writers and analysts as energy, firmness, staunchness, strength of mind, and character. All these manifestations of the heroic nature might be regarded as one and the same power of volition, modified according to circumstances. But nearly related as these things are to each other, still they are not one and the same, and it is desirable for us to distinguish here, a little more closely, at least, the action of the powers of the soul in relation to them. In the first place, to make the conception clear, it is essential to observe that the weight, burden, resistance, or whatever it may be called, by which the force of the soul in the general is brought to light, 
is only in a very small measure the enemy's activity, the enemy's resistance, the enemy's action directly. The enemy's activity only affects the general directly in the first place in relation to his person, without disturbing his action as commander. If the enemy, instead of two hours, resists for four, the commander, instead of two hours, is four hours in danger. This is a quality which plainly diminishes the higher the rank of the commander. What is it for what in the post of commander-in-chief? It is nothing. Secondly, although the opposition offered by the enemy has a direct effect on the commander, through the loss of means arising from prolonged resistance, and the responsibility connected with that loss, and his force of will is first tested and called forth by these anxious considerations, still, we maintain, this is not the heaviest burden by far which he has to bear, because he has only himself to settle with. All the other effects of the enemy's resistance act directly upon the combatants under his command, and through them react upon him. As long as his men, full of good courage, fight with zeal and spirit, it is seldom necessary for the chief to show great energy of purpose in the pursuit of his object. But as soon as difficulties arise, and that must always happen when great results are at stake, then things no longer move on of themselves like a well-oiled machine. The machine itself begins to offer resistance, and to overcome this, the commander must have a great force of will. By this resistance we must not exactly suppose disobedience and murmurs, although these are frequent enough with particular individuals. It is the whole feeling of the dissolution of all physical and moral power. It is the heart-rending sight of the bloody sacrifice which the commander has to contend with in himself and then in all others, who directly or indirectly transfer to him their impressions, feelings, anxieties, and desires. As the force in one individual after another becomes prostrated, and can no longer be excited and supported by an effort of his own will, the whole inertia of the mass gradually rests its weight on the will of the commander. By the spark in his breast, by the light of his spirit, the spark of purpose, the light of hope, must be kindled afresh in others. In so far only as he is equal to this, he stands above the masses and continues to be their master. Whenever that influence ceases, and his own spirit is no longer strong enough to revive the spirit of all others, the masses, drawing him down with them, sink into the lower region of animal nature, which shrieks from danger and knows no shame. These are the weights which the courage and intelligent faculties of the military commander have to overcome if he is to make his name illustrious. They increase with the masses, and therefore, if the forces in question are to continue equal to the burden, they must rise in proportion to the height of the station. Energy in action expresses the strength of the motive through which the action is excited. Let the motive have its origin in a conviction of the understanding, or in an impulse, but the latter can hardly ever be wanting, where great force is to show itself. Of all the noble feelings which fill the human heart in the exciting tumult of battle, None, we must admit, are so powerful and constant as the soul's thirst for honour and renown, which the German language treats so unfairly and tends to deprecate by the unworthy associations in the word Ehrgeiz, greed of honour, and Rumsucht, hankering after glory. No doubt it is just in war that the abuse of these proud aspirations of the soul must bring upon the human race the most shocking outrages but by their origin they are certainly to be counted amongst the noblest feelings which belong to human nature, and in war they are the vivifying principle which gives the enormous body a spirit. Although other feelings may be more general in their influence, and many of them, 
such as love of country, fanaticism, revenge, enthusiasm of every kind, may seem to stand higher, the thirst for honour and renown still remains indispensable. Those other feelings may rouse the great masses in general and excite them more powerfully, but they do not give the leader a desire to will more than others, which is an essential requisite in his position if he is to make himself distinguished in it. They do not, like the thirst for honour, make the military act, specially the property of the leader, which he strives to turn to the best account, where he ploughs with toil, sows with care, that he may reap plentifully. It is through these aspirations we have been speaking of in commanders, from the highest to the lowest, this sort of energy, this spirit of emulation, these incentives, that the action of armies is chiefly animated and made successful. And now, as that which specially concerns the head of all, we ask, has there ever been a great commander destitute of the love of honour, or is such a character even conceivable? Firmness denotes the resistance of the will in relation to the force of a single blow. Staunchness in relation to a continuance of blows. Close as is the analogy between the two, and often as the one is used in place of the other, still there is a notable difference between them which cannot be mistaken, insomuch as firmness against a single powerful impression may have its root in the mere strength of a feeling, but staunchness must be supported rather by the understanding. For the greater duration of an action, the more systemic deliberation is connected with it, and from this staunchness partially derives its power. If we now turn to strength of mind, or soul, then the first question is, what are we to understand thereby? Plainly, it is not vehement expressions of feeling, nor easily excited passions, for that would be contrary to all usage of language, but the power of listening to reason in the midst of the most intense excitement, in the storm of the most violent passions. Should this power depend on the strength of understanding alone, we doubt it. The fact that there are men of the greatest intellect who cannot command themselves certainly proves nothing to the contrary, for we might say that it perhaps requires an understanding of a powerful rather than a comprehensive nature, but we believe we shall be nearer the truth if we assume that the power of submitting oneself to the control of the understanding, even in moments of the most violent excitement of the feelings, that power which we call self-command, has its root in the heart itself. It is, in point of fact, another feeling which in strong minds balances the excited passions without destroying them. And it is only through this equilibrium that mastery of the understanding is secured. This counterpoise is nothing but a sense of the dignity of man, that noblest pride, that deep-seated desire of the soul, always to act as a being endued with understanding and reason. We may therefore say that a strong mind is one which does not lose its balance, even under the most violent excitement. If we cast a glance at the variety to be observed in the human character in respect to feeling, we find, first, some people who have very little excitability, who are called phlegmatic or indolent, second, some very excitable, but whose feelings still never overstep certain limits, and who are therefore known as men full of feeling but sober-minded. Thirdly, there are those very easily roused, whose feelings blaze up quickly and violently like gunpowder, but do not last. Fourthly and lastly, those who cannot be moved by slight causes, and who generally are not to be roused suddenly, but only gradually, but whose feelings become very powerful and are much more lasting. These are men with strong passions, lying deep and latent. This difference of character lies probably close on the confines of the physical powers which move the human organism, and belongs to the amphibious organization which we call the nervous system, 
which appears to be partly material, partly spiritual. With our weak philosophy we shall not proceed further in this mysterious field, but it is important for us to spend a moment over the effects which these different natures have on action in war, and to see how far a great strength of mind is to be expected from them. Indolent men cannot easily be thrown out of their equanimity, but we cannot certainly say there is strength of mind where there is a want of all manifestation of power. At the same time, it is not to be denied that such men have a certain peculiar aptitude for war on account of their constant equanimity. They often want the positive motive to action, impulse, and consequential activity, but they are not apt to throw things into disorder. The peculiarity of the second class is that they are easily excited to act on trifling grounds, but in great matters they are easily overwhelmed. Men of this kind show great activity in helping an unfortunate individual, but by the distress of a whole nation they are only inclined to despond, not roused to action. Such people are not deficient in either activity or equanimity in war, but they will never accomplish anything great unless a great intellectual force furnishes the motive and it is very seldom that a strong, independent mind is combined with such a character. Excitable, inflammable feelings are in themselves very little suited for practical life, and therefore they are not very fit for war. They have certainly the advantage of strong impulses, but they cannot sustain them. At the same time, if the excitability in such men takes the direction of courage or a sense of honour, they may be very useful in inferior positions in war, because the action in war over which commanders in inferior positions have control is generally of shorter duration. Here one courageous resolution, one effervescence of the forces of the soul, will often suffice. A brave attack, a soul-stirring hurrah, is the work of a few moments, whilst a brave contest on the battlefield is the work of a day, and a campaign the work of a year. Owing to the rapid movement of their feelings, it is doubly difficult for men of this description to preserve equilibrium of the mind, therefore they frequently lose head, and that is the worst phase in their nature as respects the conduct of war. But it would be contrary to experience to maintain that very excitable spirits can never preserve a steady equilibrium, that is to say, they cannot do so even under the strongest excitement. Why should they not have the sentiment of self-respect, for, as a rule, they are men of a noble nature? This feeling is seldom wanting in them but it has not the time to produce an effect. After an outburst, they suffer most from a feeling of inward humiliation. If through education, self-observance, and experience of life, they have learned, sooner or later, the means of being on their guard, so that at the moment of powerful excitement they are conscious betimes of the counteracting force within their own breasts, then even such men may have great strength of mind. Lastly, those who are difficult to move, but on that account susceptible of very deep feelings, Men who stand in the same relation to the proceeding as red heat to a flame are the best adapted by means of their titanic strength to roll away the enormous masses by which we may figuratively represent the difficulties which beset command in war. The effect of their feelings is like the movement of a great body, slower but more irresistible. Although such men are not so likely to be suddenly surprised by their feelings and carried away so as to be afterwards ashamed of themselves, like the preceding, still it would be contrary to experience to believe that they can never lose their equanimity or be overcome by blind passion. On the contrary, this must always happen whenever the noble pride of self-control is wanting, or as often as it has not sufficient weight. 
we see examples of this most frequently in men of noble minds belonging to savage nations where the low degree of mental cultivation favours always the dominance of the passions but even amongst the most civilised classes in civilised states life is full of examples of this kind of men carried away by the violence of their passions like the poacher of old chained to the stag in the forest we therefore say once more a strong mind is not one that is merely susceptible of strong excitement but one which can maintain its serenity under the most powerful excitement so that in spite of the storm in the breast the perception and judgment can act with perfect freedom like the needle of the compass in the storm-tossed ship by the term strength of character or simply character is denoted tenacity of conviction let it be the result of our own or others views and whether they are principles opinions momentary inspirations or any other kind of emanations of the understanding but this kind of firmness certainly cannot manifest itself if the views themselves are subject to frequent change this frequent change need not be the consequence of external influences it may proceed from the continuous activity of our own mind in which case it indicates a characteristic unsteadiness of mind evidently we should not say of a man who changes his views every moment however much the motives of the change may originate with himself that he has character only those men therefore can be said to have this quality whose conviction is very constant either because it is deeply rooted and clear in itself little liable to alteration or because as in the case of indolent men there is a want of mental activity and therefore a want of motives to change or lastly because an explicit act of will derived from an imperative maxim of the understanding refuses any change of opinion up to a certain point now in war owing to the many and powerful impressions to which the mind is exposed and in the uncertainty of all knowledge and of all science more things occur to distract a man from the road he has entered upon to make him doubt himself in others than in any other human activity the harrowing sight of danger and suffering leads to the feelings gaining ascendancy over the conviction of the understanding and in the twilight which surrounds everything a deep clear view is so difficult that a change of opinion is more conceivable and more pardonable it is at all times only conjecture or guesses at truth which we have to act upon this is why differences of opinion are nowhere so great as in war and the stream of impressions acting counter to one's own convictions never ceases to flow even the greatest impassibility of mind is hardly proof against them because the impressions are so powerful in their nature and always act at the same time upon the feelings when the discernment is clear and deep none but the general principles and views of action from a high standpoint can be the result and on these principles the opinion in each particular case immediately under consideration lies as it were at anchor but to keep to these results of bygone reflection in opposition to the stream of opinions and phenomena which the present brings with it is just the difficulty between the particular case and the principle there is often a wide space which cannot always be traversed on a visible chain of conclusions and where a certain faith in self is necessary and a certain amount of scepticism is serviceable here often nothing else will help us but an imperative maxim which independent of reflection at once controls it that maxim is in all doubtful cases adhere to the first opinion and do not give it up until a clear conviction forces us to do so we must firmly believe in the superior authority of well-tried maxims and under the dazzling influence of momentary events 
not forget that their value is of an inferior stamp. By this preference, which in doubtful cases we give to first convictions, by adherence to the same our actions acquire the stability and consistency which make up what is called character. It is easy to see how essential a well-balanced mind is to strength of character. Therefore men of strong minds generally have a great deal of character. Force of character leads to a spurious variety of it, obstinacy. It is often very difficult in concrete cases to say where the one ends and the other begins. On the other hand, it does not seem difficult to determine the difference in idea. Obstinacy is no fault of the understanding. We use the term as denoting a resistance against our better judgment, and it would be inconsistent to charge that to the understanding, as the understanding is the power of judgment. Obstinacy is a fault of the feelings or the heart. This inflexibility of will, this impatience of contradiction, have their origin only in a particular kind of egotism, which sets above every other pleasure that of governing both self and others by its own mind alone. We should call it a kind of vanity were it not decidedly something better. Vanity is satisfied with mere show, but obstinacy rests upon the enjoyment of the thing. We say, therefore, force of character degenerates into obstinacy whenever the resistance to opposing judgments proceeds not from better convictions or a reliance upon a trustworthy maxim, but from a feeling of opposition. If this definition as we have already admitted, is of little assistance practically, still it will prevent obstinacy from being considered merely force of character intensified, whilst it is something entirely different, something which certainly lies close to it, and is cognate to it, but is at the same time so little an intensification of it, that there are very obstinate men who, from want of understanding, have very little force of character. Having in these attributes of a great military commander made ourselves acquainted with those qualities in which heart and head cooperate, we now come to a speciality of military activity which perhaps may be looked upon as the most marked, if not the most important, and which only makes a demand on the power of the mind without regard to the forces of the feelings. It is the connection which exists between war and country or ground. This connection is, in the first place, a permanent condition of war, for it is impossible to imagine our organized armies affecting any operation otherwise than in some given space. It is, secondly, of the most decisive importance, because it modifies, at times completely alters, the action of all forces. Thirdly, while on the one hand it often concerns the most minute features of locality, on the other it may apply to immense tracts of country. In this manner, a great peculiarity is given to the effect of this connection of war with country and ground. If we think of other occupations of man which have a relation to these objects, on horticulture, agriculture, on building houses and hydraulic works, on mining, on the chase, and forestry, they are all confined within very limited spaces, which may be soon explored with sufficient exactness. But the commander in war must commit the business he has in hand to a corresponding space which his eye cannot survey, which the keenest zeal cannot always explore, and with which, owing to the constant changes taking place, he can also seldom become properly acquainted. Certainly the enemy generally is in the same situation. Still, in the first place, the difficulty, although common to both, is not the less a difficulty, 
and he who by talent and practice overcomes it will have a great advantage on his side secondly this equality of the difficulty of both sides is merely an abstract supposition which is rarely realized in the particular case as one of the two opponents the defensive usually knows much more about the locality than his adversary this very peculiar difficulty must be overcome by a natural mental gift of a special kind which is known by the to restricted term of the orison sense of locality it is the power of quickly forming a correct geometrical idea of any portion of country and consequently of being able to find one's place in it exactly at any time this is plainly an act of the imagination the perception no doubt is formed partially by means of the physical eye partially by the mind which fills up what is wanting with ideas derived from knowledge and experience and out of the fragments visible to the physical eye forms a whole but that this whole should present itself vividly to the reason should become a picture a mentally drawn map that this picture should be fixed that the details should never again separate themselves all that can only be affected by the mental faculty which we call imagination if some poet or painter should feel hurt that we require from his goddess such an office if he shrugs his shoulders at the notion that a sharp gamekeeper must necessarily excel in the imagination we readily grant that we only speak here of imagination in a limited sense of its service in a really menial capacity but however slight this service still it must be the work of that natural gift for if that gift is wanting it would be difficult to imagine things plainly in all the completeness of the visible that a good memory is a great assistance we freely allow but whether memory is to be considered as an independent faculty of the mind in this case or whether it is just that power of imagination which here fixes these things better on the memory we leave undecided as in many respects it seems difficult upon the whole to conceive these two mental powers apart from each other that practice and mental acuteness have much to do with it is not to be denied poysiger the celebrated quartermaster-general of the famous luxembourg used to say that he had very little confidence in himself in this respect at first because if he had to fetch the parole from a distance he always lost his way it is natural that scope for the exercise of this talent should increase along with rank if the hussar and rifleman in command of a patrol must know well all the highways and byways and if for that a few marks a few limited powers of observation are sufficient the chief of an army must make himself familiar with the general geographical features of a province and of a country must always have vividly before his eyes the direction of the roads rivers and hills without at the same time being able to dispense with the narrower sense of locality arisen no doubt information of various kinds as to objects in general maps books memoirs and for details the assistance of his staff are a great help to him but it is nevertheless certain that if he has himself a talent for forming an ideal picture of a country quickly and distinctly it lends to his action an easier and firmer step saves him from a certain mental helplessness and makes him less dependent on others if this talent is then to be ascribed to imagination it is also almost the only service which military activity requires from that erratic goddess whose influence is more hurtful than useful in other respects we think we have now passed in review those manifestations of the powers of the mind and soul which military activity requires from human nature everywhere intellect appears as an essential cooperative force and thus we can understand how the work of war although so plain and simple in its effects can never be conducted with distinguished success by people without distinguished powers of the understanding when we have reached this view then we need no longer look upon such a natural idea as the turning of the enemy's position which has been done a thousand times and a hundred other similar conceptions as the result of a great effort of genius 
Certainly one is accustomed to regard the plain, honest soldier as the very opposite of a man of reflection, full of inventions and ideas, or of the brilliant spirit shining in the ornaments of refined education of every kind. This antithesis is also by no means devoid of truth, but it does not show that the efficacy of the soldier consists only in his courage, and that there is no particular energy and capacity of the brain required in addition to make a man merely what is called a true soldier. We must again repeat that there is nothing more common than to hear of men losing their energy on being raised to a higher position, to which they do not feel themselves equal. But we must also remind our readers that we are speaking of preeminent services, of such as give renown in the branch of activity to which they belong. Each grade of command in war, therefore, forms its own stratum of requisite capability of fame and honour. An immense space lies between a general, that is, one who is at the head of a whole war, or theatre of a war, and his second in command, for the simple reason that the latter is in a more immediate subordination to a superior authority and supervision, consequently is restricted to a more limited sphere of independent thought. This is why common opinion sees no room for the exercise of high talent except in high places, and looks upon an ordinary capacity as sufficient for all beneath. This is why people are rather inclined to look upon a subordinate general, grown grey in the service, and in whom constant discharge of routine duties has produced a decided poverty of mind, as a man of failing intellect, and with all respect for his bravery, to laugh at his simplicity. It is not our object to gain for these brave men a better lot, that would contribute nothing to their efficiency, and little to their happiness. We wish only to represent things as they are, and to expose the error of believing that a mere bravo without intellect can make himself distinguished in war. As we consider distinguished talents requisite for those who are to attain distinction, even in inferior positions, it naturally follows that we think highly of those who fill with renown the place of second-in-command of an army, and their seeming simplicity of character as compared with a polyhistor, with ready men of business, or with counsellors of state, must not lead us astray as to the superior nature of their intellectual activity. It happens sometimes that men import the fame gained in an inferior position to a higher one, without in reality deserving it in the new position, and then, if they are not much employed, and therefore not much exposed, to the risk of showing their weak points, the judgment does not distinguish very exactly what degree of fame is really due to them, and thus such men are often the occasion of too low an estimate being formed of the characteristics required to shine in certain situations. For each station, from the lowest upwards, to render distinguished services in war, there must be a particular genius, but the title of genius, history, and the judgment of posterity only confer, in general, on those minds which have shone in the highest rank, that of commanders-in-chief. The reason is that here, in point of fact, the demand on reasoning and intellectual powers is much greater. To conduct a whole war, or its great acts, which we call campaigns, to a successful termination, there must be an intimate knowledge of state policy in its higher relations. The conduct of the war and the policy of state here coincide, and the general becomes, at the same time, the statesman. We do not give Charles the Twelfth the name of a great genius, because he could not make the power of his sword subservient to a higher judgment and philosophy, could not attain by it to a glorious object. We do not give that title to Henry the Fourth of France, because he did not live long enough, to set at rest the relations of different states by his military activity, and to occupy himself in that higher field, where noble feelings and a chivalrous disposition have less to do in mastering the enemy than in overcoming internal dissension. 
in order that the reader may appreciate all that must be comprehended and judged of correctly at a glance by a general we refer to the first chapter we say the general becomes a statesman but he must not cease to be the general he takes in view all the relations of the state on one hand on the other he must know exactly what he can do with the means at his disposal as the diversity and undefined limits of all the circumstances bring a great number of factors into consideration in war as the most of these factors can only be estimated according to probability therefore if the chief of an army does not bring to bear upon them a mind with an intuitive perception of the truth a confusion of ideas and views must take place in the midst of which the judgment will become bewildered in this sense bonaparte was right when he said that many of the questions which come before a general for decision would make problems for a mathematical calculation not unworthy of the powers of newton or euler what is he required from the higher powers of the mind is a sense of unity and a judgment raised to such a compass as to give the mind an extraordinary faculty of vision which in its range allays and sets aside a thousand dim notions which an ordinary understanding could only bring to light with great effort and over which it would exhaust itself but this higher activity of mind this glance of genius would still not become matter of history if the qualities of temperament and character of which we have treated did not give it their support truth alone is but a weak motive of action with men and hence there is always a great difference between knowing and action between science and art the man receives the strongest impulse to action through the feelings and the most powerful succour if we may use that expression through those faculties of heart and mind which we have considered under the terms of resolution firmness perseverance and force of character if however this elevated condition of heart and mind in the general did not manifest itself in the general effects resulting from it and could only be accepted on trust and faith then it would rarely become matter of history all that becomes known of the course of events in war is usually very simple and has a great sameness in appearance no one on the mere relation of such events perceives the difficulties connected with them which had to be overcome it is only now and again in the memoirs of generals or of those in their confidence or by reason of some special historical inquiry directed to a particular circumstance that a portion of the many threads comprising the whole web is brought to light the reflections mental doubts and conflicts which precede the execution of great acts are purposely concealed because they affect political interests or the recollection of them is accidentally lost because they have been looked upon as mere scaffolding which had to be removed on the completion of the building if now in conclusion without venturing upon a closer definition of the higher powers of the soul we should admit a distinction in the intelligent faculties themselves according to the common ideas established by language and ask ourselves what kind of mind comes closest to military genius then a look at the subject as well as at experience will tell us that searching rather than inventive minds comprehensive minds rather than such as have a special bent cool rather than fiery heads are those to which in time of war we should prefer to trust the welfare of our women and children the honour and safety of our fatherland end of book one chapter three recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia